through that, you persevere and you learn a lot about your own character and, you know, and you build these friendships that are just like, like I could go back in 10, 20, 30 years and I guarantee Zachariah and Abdul Wahed will be stoked to see me. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. Today's episode is an interesting one. It's kind of like a career, but also not really. It's about being in the Peace Corps. So joining me in the episode is Jeff Palmer, who was in the Peace Corps a couple years ago, stationed in Morocco for two years. So he's going to tell us all about that experience. So if you have ever wondered or thought about being in the Peace Corps or some sort of other um, international organization like that, where you go and spend some of your time in another country, this should be a great listen. Without further ado, here is Peace Corps volunteer. Jeff, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Absolutely. Great to be here. So why don't we start with kind of a layup question, um, which is what is the Peace Corps? I think most people know a little bit about the Peace Corps, but just, you know, they've heard things here and there from someone who's actually done it and actually been there. What what is the Peace Corps? Yeah, this is a good question. And I'll, I'll start with kind of a historical explanation of what Peace Corps is, where it started, and then kind of go into where, where I stand on what Peace Corps is. Um, Peace Corps was established uh, by... John F. Kennedy during the Cold War. Um, and it was part of a kind of hearts and minds campaign for getting Americans on the ground um, and selling our kind of capitalist ideals, right? Um, I, I can see your eyes right now. So I know that you're not reading this off of your computer screen. That's incredible. You just sounded like you were reading a brochure. <laughs> like part of the hearts and minds campaign. That was, uh, that was great. And it's true. And, and that's a really important kind of factor of of kind of understanding what Peace Corps is all about. Um, because as time has gone on, Peace Corps has kind of adopted this image uh, as being an international development organization. Uh, no longer is it about selling the idea of capitalism and democracy um, to counter, you know, communism. Now it's about, you know, developing underdeveloped nations and providing them with kind of... Um, skills or the necessary education so that they can kind of further themselves in this globalized uh, environment. That's really interesting. So back in the day when it was created, this was during the time of us versus communism or democracy versus communism. And they were basically planting people in countries to try to make democracy the way of life. That's exactly right. Uh, And at first it was kind of building bridges and giving people kind of, um, resources or or access to essential resources like building hospitals um schools um but just giving them a high five like that's the type of stuff democracy does that hospital right right there absolutely and obviously waving the flag of america as you go through yeah um and that's not necessarily a bad thing no Uh, not at all i think it's this is a great way of kind of avoiding war right It's, it's putting americans on the ground of developing countries who may have an idea of what an American is and what they stand for, but then actually giving them like, you know, access to an, you know, an American person uh, with whom they create bonds and relationships. Um, And so Peace Corps is, you know, about grassroots development, but it's also about building relationships. And I think that's an essential kind of, thing that that Peace Corps does. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So I read a statistic earlier today on the Peace Corps website that I think so far there's been 220,000 people that have volunteered for the Peace Corps. And like, how come the whole world doesn't just love us already? Like, what's the issue there? Um, This is an interesting question. I mean, there there are obvious kind of geopolitical considerations. Um, We have a a history of kind of standing up despotic regimes in in South America and uh, in the Middle East. Um, 
But those aren't necessarily the countries that we kind of serve. I would say that we do have a pretty good, um, we do have strong bilateral relationships with the countries that we serve. So awesome. um, Panama, for example. I mean, that's probably a bad example considering <laughs> our history with Panama. Um, but um, but so you do only, see the mission kind of paying off in these places that, that we are? Yes and no. Um, because the Americans that we're sending to these countries are kind of different from the Americans that they're seeing on the news. Um, they're seeing America with, you know, a huge domestic gun problem, right? Gun violence problem spreading throughout America. And you go to these countries and they're like, do you have a gun? That's almost, that's one of the first questions they'll ask you. Really? That's so interesting. Uh, and I personally do not own a gun. So they're kind of like, well, why don't you? You know, everybody owns a gun. Um, so I think it does help change their perspective, but they they treat it as an isolated. They're, they're like, you're American, but you're not like most Americans. Right. And that, I think that's true in a sense. But is that, do you then look at that as kind of a main goal of being over there is to explain to them like these things that they're seeing on the news or whatever else is this very small part of the population and this exaggerated thing that's in front of them is that is that something that's tried that you try to explain to them yeah and that's actually explicitly one of our goals the first one being our primary assignment um so i was a small business development advisor i worked with a women's cooperative in a rural town um that was my primary goal my secondary goal was to kind of act as a you know a micro ambassador to America, like explaining um, our alliances, our allegiances, kind of our um, our wars at times. Um, and although Peace Corps officially discourages volunteers from engaging in political discussion, um, that's really what most substantive conversations come down to. Yeah, I mean, what else are people going to want to talk about? You know, right? Yeah, um, I mean, you could talk about hamburgers and stuff like that, but yeah. Um, people, you know, you know, when I was in Morocco, there were a lot of questions about George Bush and how do you kind of, how do you, how do you kind of just completely ignore that? Yeah, totally. Especially when, yeah, especially when you've, you've stood up to represent your country. I mean, yeah, that it kind of puts you in a weird spot to, to not answer that or to answer that. It's, that's really interesting. Did, do you get questions a lot about like, do you know Britney Spears? Do you know Lady Gaga? Do people ask you that? So, yes, all the time. <laughs> um, but again, it was mostly kind of, you know, political bodies. But it was also like, do you know Little Wayne? That was a big one. Um, <laughs> I'm and, totally outdated try- with the Britney Spears reference, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <that's- laughs> Um, she's like doing performances in Vegas. She's like totally out of the question. Yeah, yeah, uh, totally. I would try to clarify. I'd be like, like, do I know them personally, or like, do I know of them? Do I know like their music? Yeah, uh, and I never got a clear response. <laughs> I think they actually thought like maybe I just like grew up with Lil Wayne. Uh, yeah, and um, I possibly know him. Um, same with Obama, who you know was greatly favored in morocco especially among the youth um as our first african-american president that i mean really inspiring in uh in north africa were you there during the election jeff were you there for two different presidents um i was there i was leaving um during the obama's second election okay um that was around the time I was leaving. So you were saying what people talking about George Bush, that wasn't because he was in office. That was because they viewed it as his decision to go to war and stuff like that. Yeah. So that was part of kind of this ongoing um, kind of conversation that's happening across like Muslim majority countries of this idea of the United States kind of trying to subjugate, you know, Muslim majority countries and to dominate them and control their resources, particularly oil, Um, it's almost a cliche at this point, but it's actually a genuine conversation that's occurring across, across the region. Do you feel that because of 
the internet and because of the Peace Corps and stuff like that, that more more often people are starting to separate the citizens of a country from the leaders of a country. Like they don't they don't view you as like, oh, you're American, therefore you are this way, or therefore you have these values that they they treat you as an individual. Yes and no. I think the internet allows for kind of all access to all this information, right? And you can find, um, you know, that not every American has the same position on any given policy. Let's say drones, for example. Um, and they'll ask me, you know, drones, like, why do you do this? Um, and these are tough questions to answer. <laughs> and you're just like, what's a drone? Like Googling that right next. <laughs> oh, yes, drones, drones, of course. Um, and so th- they do. They have this access to all this information and they can collect information. But there's also this strange phenomenon that happens on social media where you kind of surround yourself with the information that you want to see and you can reject or, um, you know, tie yourself access to contradicting information. Totally. Um, and so in some ways, like the internet has given them a way to open their minds. But in some ways, it, it can validate whatever opinion they hold. And that goes for you and me as well. Yeah, definitely. Like, I thought the dogs were really cute before, and now after all the dog photos and videos I look at every day, I'm just like, they are the cutest. They're so Absolutely. great. Yeah. I love dogs. I've actually had, <laughs> like, the whole cats thing on the internet. I'm like, get out of here. I want dogs only. Totally, man. Yeah, I don't know what, how cats ran the internet. It's very strange. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit more about what you were sent to do and like the whole sign up process of, of getting into the Peace Corps yeah. and all that. So um, how did you decide you wanted to be in the Peace Corps? What were kind of you promised when you were signing up and what were you thinking everything was going to be like? And then let's talk about what it actually was like. Okay. Um, a lot to talk about here, but I'll start with the kind of the decision to join Peace Corps. Um, I had just graduated high school in May of 2005 and people, you know, were asking, what do you want to do? And I said, like, I want to join Peace Corps. Um, this was very naive of me to, to kind of just blurt out because Peace Corps requires that you have a bachelor's degree at minimum. And if you don't have a bachelor's degree, like a substitute, you could substitute it for experience. So many agricultural specialists who go down to Latin America, um, Maybe they don't have a bachelor's degree, but they have 10 years of, of farming experience, right? Yeah. So I had neither of those. <clears throat> so, damn it. Like, I have, I wanted, I mean, I was set. Like, I wanted to go into the Peace Corps in 2005. Um, so I went through the motions, and that's not why I got a bachelor's degree. Let me make that clear. Um, but I went through, um, I ended up majoring in philosophy because I was engaged and intrigued. And also because I couldn't decide on anything of value, like a business or something like that. Um, that must have been an awesome degree to get, by the way. I I was always so jealous while I was getting a business degree of the philosophy students. I wanted to major in philosophy so bad. It was cool. Um, but you can't get a degree in philosophy without everybody around you being like, why are you getting a philosophy <laughs> yeah, including total. your parents or anybody who's supporting you whether like morally or financially like in any time you start to argue with somebody at all they're just like you pretentious son of a bitch like what yep. <laughs> with, with your philosophy degree over here um so sorry means, you so you go to school you get your philosophy degree yeah and i worked my way through through undergrad as well um and i applied I actually graduated in 2009, but I started the application process for Peace Corps in 2008, knowing that it would take a while. Okay. It ended up taking, I think, 13 months, which Holy. is horrible. Yeah. Like, comp- like horrific, right? Because you're coming out of undergrad, and many students are, and they want to go into Peace Corps, and you're just sitting there. You know, you can get a job, but it's only a job to kind of get you along. You're not going to get a career job to to go to Peace Corps a year later. Yeah. And if you uh, landed a really sweet job, you're all that, that like them. What then do you cancel your Peace Corps app? I mean, it, yeah, that just puts you in a weird spot. Right. Um, 
So I waited and I kept working and it was fine. Um, but man, it took forever. And finally, maybe six weeks before I was supposed to go, um, I was given my assignment, which was Morocco. And I would be departing from September of 2010 and returning 27 months later. Every single Peace Corps volunteer signs up for 27 months. Whether they do that whole thing is up to many circumstances. Um, but majority of volunteers do 27 months. That's what I did. So I finished in uh, November of 2012. Um, so I was in a small, well, a medium-sized rural town in southern Morocco. Um, and this is near the Sahara Desert. It was a desert landscape, much like Phoenix, um, which I wasn't exactly thrilled for. I was like, <laughs> Just I, so everyone, like, you're, you're, you grew up in Phoenix, so it's probably not very exciting to go to somewhere that I looks just like it. I grew up in Phoenix. I wanted to join the Peace Corps to go to some exotic environment. And for most other Americans going to that environment, that is pretty exotic, right? This desert landscape. Uh, but for me, it was just kind of back home. Yeah. Um, no cacti, but palm trees everywhere. So it was a desert oasis that I was living in. Um, and I lived and worked there for over two years. Um, with let's, a- sorry, Jeff. Let's talk really quickly about the arrival and that whole process, um, okay. if we could. So, like, what's it like right when you get there, the, you know, the week or so leading up to it to the week or so after, and like, I guess, or the, the training that they give you when you arrive? Yeah, and this is actually a, a very important point. Um, the week before, I was just stressing and going crazy about packing. What do I bring? What do I leave? In retrospect, I could have brought 20% of the things that I packed. <laughs> I mean, you don't need flash, you don't need to bring a flashlight. Like, they have those there. Yeah. You don't need batteries. You can buy those in Morocco. Um, so, this kind of idea that, you know, I needed all of these tools and gadgets and electronics um, was just crazy. And they're obsolete once I got there. Yeah. It's funny tr- if you've never been to a, like quote unquote third world country before or like done a lot of traveling and and you get there and you're like oh yeah like i'm not visiting cavemen like you said like, they have right. batteries like they have they need to purchase things there's a store right there and that was something i kind of learned i mean i had been to mexico um but not for a long time you know i thought i was going to morocco gonna be in the boonies um and so I wanted to bring everything that meant something to me, uh, which was crazy. Um, so you land, right? You get there. You do this orientation. Ours was in Philadelphia. Um, and they sent us. I mean, there was no supervision. We all had to get on the plane by ourselves. And then we would be retrieved in Rabat, or Casablanca, um, which is the economic capital of Morocco, but not the capital, which is Rabat. So they pick us up in Casablanca and we go by police escort. There are like 20 police motorcycles and maybe like four police cars that are escorting us in these buses. And all of us are just kind of like, why? Like, yeah, that's not why we're here. We don't want to be treated as like this embassy staff or something. Yeah. But that's what it felt like. And I think it was the Moroccan state making an effort um, to, to receive us in, you know, in a kind of a special way. Totally. They isolate us in, in this like small beach town and just kind of give us the basics of language, cultural appropriateness, kind of do the, the rundown. So how many of you all arrived at the same time? Probably, and this may not be exactly right, but I would say it was maybe around 100, 80 to 100. Wow. and Pretty big group. Typically, are you like 12 months later getting in like 50 new people or something? Or is it like that 100 is going to be there for 27 months and then a new 100 is going to come in in 27 months? So while I was there new volunteers were coming in on six month, uh, terms. So in my, they call it stage, like in my group, 
Um, there were business volunteers and youth development volunteers. Um, six months later, there was health and environment volunteers, right? So they're kind of bringing them in and separately and uh, so for programming. Yeah, for purposes. sure. That's cool. All right, so they bring you out uh, to this, this beach town. Yeah, just for a few days, kind of run, run the basics. And that is where they assign you your smaller groups, where they split everybody into groups of five, and that is for language training. Um, and I was in the only group of five that would not be learning Arabic. Um, everybody else in the entire group was learning Arabic, but I was in the group of five that was learning Berber, um, which is the language of the indigenous people of Morocco. Damn. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, it's a completely unique language. It's not rooted in Arabic. It's not rooted in uh, Latin languages. Um, it's an old-ass North African tribal language. How many people still speak Berber? So there are different types of Berber. Um, just like there are kind of different dialects of English, I suppose. Um and in my specific language, which is called Tashel Hate, there were, I think, th- two or three million speakers. Okay. So, pretty pretty few um, when you look at it. Um, but in my specific area, this was huge. And I would find out later that once I got to my site, it would be invaluable with regards to to how much work I can get done for building the trust of the community. Um, it kind of worked against me though, when I went to, you know, Arabic speaking cities, which are all the large cities in Morocco. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to communicate in what is basically a, you know, farmers, you know, a very, what is considered to be lower on, you know, this so- socioeconomic scale, this, this language that, most people don't identify with. Yeah, crazy. Okay, yeah. so you get top Berber. How, how long, I mean, so, or how long, I guess, are you isolated at this beach town and they're just training you and all that? That was maybe four days. And then they assign you these groups. Um, and I was assigned to a Berber group. And we went to a, we went together with a language and cultural facilitator um, who is a host country national. Her name was Malika. She's the best woman ever. She brought us to this town called Ait Hamza, which was in the Atlas Mountains. So it was a very cold, cold area that was very different from where I would ultimately end up. We stayed there for 10 weeks um, doing lessons six days a week for 10 hours a day. Whoa, that is intense. Yeah. And you're just with four other Americans and your LCF, the language and cultural facilitator. Like it basically in the middle of nowhere. Oh yeah. I mean, and not only that, they don't really want you going out on your own because you still don't have the kind of language and cultural understanding that's required to, to yeah. navigate a small town in the middle of nowhere. Like what are you even supposed to do on your, on your seventh day on the day off? Like <laughs> I imagine you're almost like wishing that you could just go back to class just to have something to do. So this whole time you're living with a host family. Okay. Um, and I lived with a host family of eight people. And one of the requirements for Peace Corps for hosting a volunteer is that they have to have their own room with a door that locks. There were only two rooms in this house. And I didn't figure it out until later on that the whole family was sleeping in one room so that I could have my own room. Damn, that's so with the door crazy. With a lock. Yeah. That's some powerful stuff. I mean, you know, I'm not snooping around their house, but, you know, it didn't take me too long to figure out what was going on. And so on my day off, I would spend time with my host family and we would go to Souk or the market. And that would, they go once a week, usually on Sundays. And that's where you pick up all your food, fruits and vegetables um, to cook for the following week for the entire family. So you're picking up like 30 pounds of food um, and bringing it back. And of course, you're exhausted. Sometimes, you know, you fake sick. So you get out of class one day. Um, It's tough and you're moving at a very fast pace. But 
the immersion aspect is crucial. You can take language courses, but you're not really going to take on that language until you go into a community where the, these skills can be reinforced. Yeah. So, expo- you know, while you're not in class, they want you out there talking to people. All right. So at the end of this 10-week program, you're immersed, you know this language. What happens now? So while I was in Eid Hamza, I was learning a different dialect, which is called Tamazicht. And Tamazicht was the language that most of the people in my group would be speaking. But were once you, I was sent... The way you say that, were you able to do that before? Like, how long did it take you to even be able to say that one word properly? So this is really funny because I would always kind of overemphasize, um, like, different inflections that yeah. occur. So let's say the word for Friday, it's, it's Jumua. Right, that almost sounds the, French. That's crazy. The way I learned it was by imitating Arnold Schwarzenegger, and like the <laughs> down, it's like the jumua, yeah. Right, and so as I was doing it, you know, my fellow Americans are laughing at me, and I'm like, I'm saying it right. You fools are saying it wrong. <laughs> and Malika, the LCF, was like, No, like Jawad, which was the name that I took on. Jawad is right. Like he's saying it correctly. Um, <laughs> And so it was purely through imitation. And I would, you know, sometimes when you imitate, you exaggerate. Yeah. I was guilty of that and it ultimately toned it down. That's a great idea. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the other Americans thought I was kind of making fun of the language and I wasn't. I was really just trying to nail it. Um, but after this 10 weeks, they send you to your site. And that's where you go alone for the next two years. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, a big moment um and i was sent to the south which was maybe a 10 to 12 hour drive from where i was in Eid hamza um and that's pretty scary and but when you do move to your site or like for the first time you have another host family uh and they take you on for maybe a month or you know two months and then you you know peace corps gives you money to get your own place and then you do your thing. Um, so talk to us about what happened when you got there. So the first meal that I had at my new host family's house, and I had a wonderful first host family experience. Absolutely love those people. The second host family was a little bit more complicated. Um, the first meal that they served me was a this like cow brain omelet, um, which was like, what it sounds like cow brains mixed with eggs yeah, and with like salt on it. Um, and the, fir- one of the things they teach you is like to establish boundaries with your community, with the people you work with and your host families kind of tell them like, cause you don't want them thinking that you love cow brain and egg set, you know, uh, omelets and then they'll cook it for you every week. And they really will. They want to accommodate you. And so I didn't, I guess I didn't do it quite tactfully enough, um, but I just looked at them and I was like, I don't want cow brains. <laughs> just trying to be real straightforward with the whole thing. Just trying to be real. Yeah. Uh, trying to, you know, set those boundaries. And they were kind of like, who do you think you are? Um, and that was a bad move on my part. Did and they I actually say that to you? No, but I mean, that was kind of the sentiment and later on it was kind of like, um, it became more and more clear that there was some tension going on. There were kids in the house and I didn't want them to watch me smoking cigarettes. I was smoking at the time. Yeah. Don't anymore. Um, and I didn't want the kids to see me smoking, which in Morocco, like people smoke everywhere and like kids can deal with it, right? There's no problem with smoking. So I would like sneak out of the house and have a cigarette and like sneak back in, which is like in Morocco, like it's all about face, right? It's saving face. And for this family, it was very shameful for me to be like hiding stuff. From yeah. What why they perceived. Did, why didn't you just me. tell them like, hey, man, I, I just I'm trying to do this away from your kids. I actually did. I was like, I don't want the kids to see me, but they thought that that was kind of a, an invalid excuse because yeah. for them in their perspective, they're like, well, you're an idiot. No, the kids are fine. Yeah. Go have a cigarette. Um, 
so that was another like big thing that caused a lot of tension um so you get there you're just immediately tearing down any cultural building that's happened for the past hundred years you get in there and you're just messing everything up i'm just i'm just destroying it so what does that do to you mentally? I mean, that's got to be really strange when it's like all you want, you know, you've prepped for this for years and years and years of your life and you've been like waiting for this and then you get there and it's like this, I don't, it's just like not happening. That's got to be really difficult emotionally. Especially compared to the first host family who was just overwhelmingly accommodating and just wonderful and the kids, like it, it was just the most beautiful experience. And I go... And this this family was also a little bit more religiously conservative, um, which is perfectly fine. But again, um, you know, questions arise. And I mean, for these families to host volunteers, there is a huge financial incentive. Like, let's be clear about that. Um, for my first host family, I found out later on that the money they made from my staying there allowed them to build a massive extension to their house and build another room. So wow. that maybe when they, they host host another one, or uh, as the family grows, and it certainly did, there were you know two grandparents; those were my host parents, four kids, and then their kids had kids. I yeah. mean, the big families. Um, so it means a lot for them to host people, but perhaps my second host family was kind of more financially motivated, um, and I had found out that the volunteer. Uh, before me had recommended that Peace Corps maybe find another host family for the incoming volunteer. So some of it, I totally blamed on myself and I still do today. The brain egg omelet was a huge like mistake. And then hiding the cigarettes was like a major problem as well. Let me ask you a question about the food thing. Cause you, you mentioned that they tell you to establish your boundaries, but at the same time, it's like, I mean, some white kids from America, it's like, you know, all they eat is like turkey sandwiches every single day. You know, like if they go to any country, they're not going to be able to get it. I imagine they also coach you in the other way. Like, look, you might not be getting food that you're used to. You kind of have to put like, you know, pick your battles. Do they do they give you any kind of talk like that? They do. They. This is really interesting, too, because a lot of American vegetarians are coming in. Right. And they're like, oh, I don't eat meat. And people are you know, Moroccans are like, what the hell do you mean? You I'm surprised. I honestly am surprised they even allow that. Like, I feel like that is like it, it, to the point of how those people were weirded out by you not wanting to eat the brains. Like, I feel like if you told a fam, like a culture who, let's say, like values their animals so much and it's like such a part of like how they're able to be what they are and you tell them like, oh, I don't want that. And then, like, your excuse for why you don't want it is because I value that animal. Then it's, like, very offensive. Like, what, are you trying to tell me I don't value this animal? Like, I love this animal. Like, that's why we're eating it, you know? So, I, that's, man, that's got to be very It provides strange. for our family. Yeah, right. you're exactly right. And so Peace Corps really urges vegetarians maybe to break vegetarianism um, or to, I don't know, to do the best they can to formulate an explanation that is both culturally sensitive, but also sticks to their principles. And that's kind of the best you can ask for. Wow. Um, But as my service went on, and this is the reason I made, I realized this is a crucial mistake. I ate everything except for eyeballs and genitals. And I have friends who have had both of those. I was never offered either. Would I do it? Not quite sure. But I ate the cartilage off of kneecaps I ate like hoof cartilage. I ate brains, intestines. Um, one of my favorite kind of strange foods was um, uh, chicken liver wrapped in like these slight, thinly sliced fat, and they like put it on the grill. It's amazing, uh, super fattening, good. but it was great. Um, so I realized I came in a little bit hesitant. Um, but once I was there, I really opened up. But that also opened me up to some sicknesses as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I bet. Um, so this family that you didn't start out with very well, were you with them for two years? No. So I stayed with them, as with all volunteers do. It's just to kind of transition you into your permanent site. I lived with them, I think, for eight weeks. So two more months. 
Um, and then I got my own place. Um, and so we kind of, <clears throat> my, my vacating their place was even a little, done a little bit like unceremoniously where I left a day early because like my move in date was in a day earlier than their contract. They thought they may not be getting paid for the last day. I was like trying to explain like you're getting paid, but I'm getting out of here. They're like, of course you are. And it was just another <laughs> misstep where of course you, know, you are, are Jeff. Very... Yeah. And no, I'm there and I, I want to be part of this community, but I'm just making these honestly like come like they were mistakes, but they were serious missteps that upon so, reflection, <laughs> this family, the second family, this is when you're already in the community that you're going to be in, but you're living with the host family while you're learning. And then when you get your own place, they just kind of cut you loose and that's going to be your own place for the next two years. But so that host family that you didn't hit it off with, that was still in the community that you live with for the next two years. That's exactly right. So the idea is that this host family will be your anchor. And for like vast majority of volunteers, you know, they do, they, I mean, a friend of mine stayed with his host family for a year and a half on his own volition. Um, I so, I mean, I yeah, I can't imagine like what that's like for you. Then just like wondering, like, man, I wonder how many people in the community the host family knows and how influential they are, and if people are just going to be like eyeballing me the whole time I'm walking around because of bad stories. Yeah, you're exactly right. So the, my host father in the second family was a local. Kaid, he was a local official. Oh. Um, and so people with whom I worked, like the women, they would ask, like, why don't you visit Ali? And um, I, I couldn't explain kind of the, the feeling. And the more time that went on, just the, you know, the more kind of tense it became. And I would visit them on occasion. I really would. Um, but, you know, it would just be on, you know, kind of false, false pretenses almost. It was just to, like, drop by and to say hello. Um, and this didn't really affect my service too negatively. Um, I mean, we really are focusing on the negative aspects of my service here. And this was a big part of that. Um, but there were good things as well. Yeah, so let's talk about some of those. Let's talk about the job that you did there. Um, first, let's talk about the job. So um, you said you were a small business consultant? Yeah, and I was assigned to a women's cooperative. So that was another cultural obstacle that I had to overcome that I think I did pretty effectively. Um, as a male coming into a an all-women's environment. Why did they do that? Uh, they have 100 volunteers. Why would they even do that? It's like the America model. It's like, we're going to change this. Like, yeah, no, we're going to send a mail in there. It was one of those, <laughs> um, right. just to challenge, you know, these, these preconceived notions in the community that men and women should be, you know, kind of separated. And, um, and that was fine. Actually, it was, I was able to overcome that with the help of the previous volunteer who That's is also so funny male. though. It's like, even in America though, if there was a woman's cooperative, they're not going to want a man to come in as a business consultant. They're like, no, we're women. We can do this. Like, give us a women's business. Cons you know, like, that's so, <laughs> that's so, so strange it, to be like, oh, like, we're going to try to break down some barriers right now. Like, it doesn't matter what country you're in. You know, there is, you know, uh, women's rights and women power and trying to do their own thing. That's great. And here, kind of setting boundaries works both ways. Um, because I went in and set down some rules to them explicitly. Like, I'm not going to touch your money ever. I'm not even going to look at your, like, your little book. I'm going to tell you how to make that book organized, but I'm not even going to look at it because there's a serious mistrust of men coming in, maybe the fathers or brothers of some of the women coming in and, you know, needing money. Um, and they're basically coerced into giving them money. And a lot of kind of development statistics show that like women invest their money. They don't spend it on cigarettes and coffee. They invest it and it goes back into the family. Um, so it was important to me that they knew my motives, right? 
And that was the first thing I did. I will not touch or look at your money ever. A second rule that I had was that I would never be at the cooperative if there was only one other woman there. Wow, that's really good. Good As community members are walking by, they look in, they see me, they see another woman. There's a a conspiracy, right? Um, So these are the kind of things that I did correctly uh, when I got there. Um, And that was tough because... As a male coming in and working with women, a lot of the men in the community with whom I established very strong, you know, like awesome relationships with, they were like, why are you working with women? Like, like th- that makes you look bad. Damn, like it, that's it so lowers crazy. my own credibility in the community. Yeah. Um, but again, these are the challenges that Peace Corps wants Americans to dive into and overcome ultimately. Um, and I did. I mean, I, I started a uh, like an American flag football team with the help of another volunteer who had provided resources for kind of the, the very local region. Um, and we had like a football tournament that covered like five towns. And that was kind of my way of working, engaging the youth um, in a kind of productive way. But my primary assignment and the thing that I focused on for two years uh, was working with this women's cooperative. So how many days a week are you supposed to formally be doing that job? There's very little oversight. And I think the oversight that does occur comes from the community. It comes from the cooperative that I was assigned to. And I love that. They were like, when I wasn't there for a week, if I took a vacation or I was sick, they were like, you need to be here. And I love that because that <laughs> made me feel valuable. Totally. Like, like part of the team. Um, and so it's kind of organic in a way. It's a very different kind of business model where you put in your time. Yeah. It's not an explicit obligation. It's more of like a moral obligation of, of just being there. Yeah, a true sense of teamwork. Yeah, and it really was. Um, it was an interesting two years working with the women. And of course, I covered a bunch of other projects. Um so were there any highlights? Like what are what are some of the achievements that you have while while working with these women? So I'll talk about this project that I did that I'm still really proud of, but we could have done so much better on. Um I got a grant from USAID, uh small projects assistance. So it's SPA or SPA. And I got like it was like fifty five hundred dollars. Not a lot of money, but in like a developing country it goes pretty damn far. Um, so with that money, I, uh, and this is based on a previous project. I was just building off that, um, that gave us money to fund, um, over 50 artisans, uh, from 31 different communities all to travel to Marrakesh, which for, for my women was, um, a 14 hour trip. Um, put them up in hotels. The first two days were like a vocational training so that he'd kind of learn new techniques and best practices in textile work. Um, and then the last few days were for them to sell their products in Marrakesh's uh, famous square. It's called Jema Alfana. Um, and compete in a marketplace. I mean, this is like real world learning, right? Which products are selling, which products aren't selling, what were people generally interested in, but they didn't buy. And what were people just like not looking at at all or giving you negative feedback about. And this, like we can tell them, you know, everything we think about it, but until they start hearing it from the consumer, they're not going to really learn anything. Yeah. And so I thought this is such a good project. Um, and it was, I mean, we did it, uh, overall, it was done like six times, but this is the one that I was like the project lead. Um, and it was implemented well, but like on day two, it was just pouring rain. So the marketplace that they were selling at, you know, was just dead and like troopers, they stuck through the rain. We had tents, so they were you know, they sat out there, but nobody's walking through in the rain, shopping around. Um, and so many of our deliverables, right, are how well products sold. Um, and it, I think it ended up that 
with the grant and the community contributions, which are supposed to be 50% of the total project, we spent more than we made, <laughs> which was yeah. heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to do that, you know? Yeah. So why don't you tell us about some of the kind of the lessons that you learned during your time there, whether that be good, bad, heartbreaking, eye-opening? I had a wonderful time. Um, but every single Peace Corps volunteer's experience is unique in that not only depends on the specific community in which they served, uh, but it also depends on country program. So Peace Corps operates in over a hundred countries, I believe. Um, and each country is going to be administered and programmed differently. And so you may have better or, or, or worse access to kind of resources that you need to be in a, you know, a really good volunteer. Um, and so I just want to kind of clarify that all of my experiences are just mine. Um, and I can't speak really for the organization as a whole, though I do have some opinions on that. Um, it was a really positive experience. Coming out of it, I learned a few things about the organization. And that is that Peace Corps kind of operates as an international development organization. Um, but if you look at other development organizations, such as the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is operated through USAID, um, or USAID itself, you find that they're doing the real development. What Peace Corps is about is more micro-diplomacy. It's this grassroots diplomacy program where, just like Peace Corps was founded, it's about getting Americans on the ground. It's still kind of doing that. But not explicitly. It it actually operates as if it's a development organization. But what happens is that it operates as a business. So they bring on volunteers who do great work, and then they go to the government. It's a government organization. They say, we need a bigger budget, right? So the more volunteers they can bring on, the bigger budget they get, they can bring on more volunteers. And that's great. Fantastic work. But if you're operating as an international development organization, you, you need to act like one. What's happening is for people like me, I had business experience. Um, but one could argue that I was not qualified to teach a women's cooperative in Tinjdad, Erashidia, Morocco, um, the essential principles of business as it operates in that country. Yeah. So we're, we're bringing on a lot of unqualified people, um, which could include myself, um, and we're, we're expecting them or encouraging them to kind of take on these big projects. And so you go in and you think, you're going to change some lives. You're going to impact this cooperative, and this cooperative is going to be super successful by the time I leave. But that's just the image that it wants to send. What I wish I was told was like, listen, man, make as many friends as possible and just hang out with people. Yeah. It sounds like you're more uh, like for the women's cooperative or, you know, anybody that has a business role like you had. It's like you're just another employee for free for, for those people, like an extra hand to help out and be there when they need it. And like they're kind of going to tell you what to do, not you telling them what to do. So your point, like who the hell are you to tell them what to do? Right. Um, and that's really interesting to me because Peace Corps recently revamped their uh, application process. And I'm glad I can bring this up. They're bringing in, so they've made it much more efficient so that people aren't taking 13 months from the beginning of their application to their first uh, foot in inside their new host country. Um, so they've revamped this application process. They're trying to get more and more volunteers out there. Um, but if they keep going on about being this development organization, um, it just makes it look bad because we, we effectively have zero deliverables. Um, 
And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to create deliverables where there are none um, by saying, we have this many business volunteers who have implemented projects in this many cooperatives and associations affecting the lives of this many women, supporting the families of this many, you know. But really, I think Peace Corps, and I'm not shitting on the program, but I think they need to be clear to volunteers what their goals are because volunteers are going in and they become quickly disenfranchised with what's going on because they can't, you know, make these these development changes without the proper resources or training, which they're not getting. Yeah, totally, man. That's it's funny because I feel like that almost mirrors the current business climate in the United States where it's like you ask someone what they do for a living. Like, why is this company paying you money? Like, why are they paying you money? And everyone has a different job title. It's all this like ambiguous white collar stuff that like, I mean, I guess if I'm not in the office, nothing really changes. But if I'm there, I find stuff to do and whatever. And it's funny because it sounds like that's the same sort of thing over there where you're like, there's no actual deliverables. It's like we in 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 the current business climate, like we create these deliverables for ourselves. Like, what are we really doing? You know, like what yeah. like I, I, I talked about that so much when I was in my previous line of work of how much I just kind of wished that I was like a mechanic or a home builder or something like that, where it's like, okay, like this car used to not run, this car now runs. I did right. that, like that's my deliverable. Almost anybody else at any other job, like if you're a marketer at Twitter, it's like, okay, we increased the number of Twitter users by a million people. Like how much of that was me? I have absolutely no idea. Like I'm right. just I'm just here. Hopefully that's helping out a little bit. And I think it sounds like that's kind of what's going on in the Peace Corps. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm just here. Hopefully I'm helping out a little bit. All right. That being said, it's a wonderful program. And I think it does wonderful things, um, not only kind of personally, like the way it personally affected me, my experience, um, but as we were talking about earlier, like in terms of bilateral relationships, not only between our countries, but between the people of our countries. Like it, it does separate the people from the government in a way. And it does kind of allow you to build these relationships. And these memories go on. When I was in Morocco, I had conversations with these old men, like very old men. And they would, they would speak to me in English and they would tell me how they still remember the American volunteer who was their English teacher, you know, 50 years prior. And that's really powerful. That yeah. memory really, I mean, for me, that was, you know, gosh, if I, if I have that impact, like I will know that I've made a difference. Yeah. Um, and that's amazing stuff. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, so why don't you go ahead and give us some advice for if somebody decides that they do want to, well, first, before you, you give us advice to get signed up for the Peace Corps and things to be thinking about when you enter the Peace Corps, um, like what type of person do you think would do well in the Peace Corps? Like what do you, what it's, I guess, some words of advice that you wish you had gotten beforehand, like, hey, you should really think about this. This is a good question. I mean, you you almost have to have to have experienced other cultures and been in a place where you have, you know, are completely lost because that will happen. Um, and it's not necessary that you have experienced those things before, but you have to know that you're capable of handling that feeling. There were a few volunteers who went into Morocco with my group and when they got there, they just freaked out. Like they just felt completely removed from home, from their, from their anchor. Um, and you know, they left, like they just couldn't handle it. That looks bad on them. Sure. I mean, that's maybe it's not even their fault, but as the organization, I mean, when we're talking about, you know, this culture of face, right. Of kind of maintaining this, you know, presence it you know propriety basically this americans leaving and they're kind of perceiving it as like she didn't like us yeah when in reality you know there's some other stuff going on 
Um, so what makes a good volunteer? Flexibility. Um, you're going to have to deal with some stuff that makes you seriously uncomfortable. And that's like talking to people, but that's also like you're going to get sick. You're going to get really sick and you're going to survive and you're going to think you're going to die, but you're going to get sick. Um, adaptability. You don't have to be the best at speaking the language, but you do have to be good at working with other people. Um, there were volunteers who just kind of got so frustrated with kind of their community that they just stayed inside, you know, paid for Wi-Fi and watched Netflix for two years. Um, that's an exaggeration, but really, like, really disengaged from their communities. That's a problem. If if you're doing that, you need to to remove yourself, to yeah. quit, yeah, um, because you're not doing anyone any good um my main takeaway and this is what i tell people when they're like i'm considering applying and this is based off of my own experience i would do it again but i wouldn't do it twice i absolutely love like my you're experience. not gonna go back <laughs> and do I it again double but up on it. yeah yeah it's like i put my time in and in fact like it's tough like you think of this like dream experience of living like at levels of poverty like poverty fucking sucks i had a bed that like destroyed my back i got extremely ill i lost and gained weight randomly um but through that you persevere and you learn a lot about your own character and you know and you build these friendships that are just like like I could go back in 10, 20, 30 years and I guarantee Zechariah and Abdul Wahed will be stoked to see me. Like I absolutely know that those guys will be there. And that, I mean, that's the stuff you get out of it. But when you go into Peace Corps thinking that you're going to provide essential resources like Peace Corps once did, you're not going to build a bridge. You're not an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Need to be realistic right? so, with yourself. What sorts of things? Of- what sorts of things do you have you? I assume learned about now after the fact that would have maybe been good test runs while here at home. Like I imagine this probably shaped the way you are in terms of volunteering and stuff like that. And I, I like I, I've I always had this stance on like let's say a family wants to have kids. Like I feel like you should only be allowed to have kids or you should only have kids if you are 100% willing that if tomorrow you find out that you cannot have kids, like they're not going to look like you, they're not going to act like you, you would want to adopt immediately because what you want to do is raise a kid. Like that's the thing that you want. You don't want to, it's not the benefit of having a human that acts like you. And I like for the Peace Corps, it's like, like you said, I think that there might be a little bit of this, um, fantasy of like oh i'm gonna be in this throwbone country doing these things like i'm gonna be sitting on my my little bed in the jungle reading thoreau at night like to myself and not like you said like throwing up along the side of my bed you know with my back aching it like i i guess i uh, the obvious ones are like just volunteer a whole bunch here at home there's plenty of people that need help here at home um but what specific things i guess uh like a checklist could someone try to know that they would probably do well this is, this is an interesting question. I've been kind of thinking about what I would say um, this whole time. I'm not quite sure how to approach it. But I, what I think, which is kind of the thesis of my argument, is that Peace Corps is about relationship building and not necessarily development. Um, go, like, leave the city in which you've been raised or in, in which you're most familiar and go to a completely random city. And for one day, just, like, try to talk to people and make friends. That's a really good idea. Yeah. (laughs) It's awkward, right? But that's what you're going to face in your communities. Like, they're like, why are you here? Like, they don't, they don't, you don't have a Peace Corps stamp. They don't even know what Peace Corps is half the time. So you have to engage. And that can be both like, like, it can really deflate you if it it doesn't go well for a few days or a few weeks. Um, But it could also really, over time and i think that that's what it's about 
you will build on those things. But if you go, you know, walk into a bar in a city that's not yours, in a culture that's not yours, and try to make some friends, that would be an interesting test. That's such good advice, man. I love that. That's perfect. Awesome. Dude, Jeff, thank you so much for all the uh, stories and advice. It was awesome. Thank you. This is this has been a, a very introspective experience for me as well. So. <laughs> Good deal, man. Glad to hear it. Take care, buddy. All right, you too.